You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. I want to invite you to join us in a journey that as a church we are taking through the season of Easter through Paul the Apostle and his letter to a church that he planted at Philippi. So join me in the letter or the book of Philippians in the New Testament, and we're going to read a chunk of the first chapter, but spend the majority of our time on verses 3 through 11. Now, last week, we, we kind of walked through the, the introduction or the, the, the greeting, if you will, in the first two verses that are action-packed and full of meaning and and full of amazing content. And, and what you'll find is, and I think I could uh, say this, is that's what you can expect for the rest of the book of Philippians. Like, if the Apostle Paul had a Twitter account, like, it would be the letter to the Philippians. It's like the greatest hits of Paul. That is, there are so many verses that you've likely, if you're in the background of a church, you've memorized right out of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And and it's just so densely packed with gospel truth and deep hope and love. And so we're going to see one of those even today. But we saw last week that we're introduced to the history, if you will, of the Philippian church in Acts chapter 16. And I commend that to you uh, to reflect on the, the story of this church plant, as it were, that, that Paul had planted and, and miraculous circumstances had brought people from a state of unbelief to faith and love and hope and new life in Jesus. And so Paul is now maybe somewhere around, give or take a few years, 10 years removed from having planted this church. And he's now in prison in Rome, most likely, and he sends back uh, a messenger that, that the Philippian church had sent to him named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus, we'll find in the chapters to come, almost died of sickness serving the gospel alongside Paul and Timothy. And so he sends them back with a thank you letter for the financial and, and otherwise gift that the Philippian church had invested into Paul. And so this letter is largely a, an elaborate, joyful thank you letter that expresses encouragement to these people. That after all, they were deeply discouraged and fearful. Their founding pastor had been imprisoned, had been arrested because of his proclamation of Jesus as Lord. And you'll say, well, why would anyone do that? Well, well, at that particular time, you would have to think in terms of, the, of that context, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Savior. And for someone to come along and say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. And, and the good news of victory is not the victory of Rome, but the victory of Christ through his death and resurrection. So he gets thrown into prison, even when they were first planting the church, the, the, the spread of the gospel, the conversion of people to faith in Jesus caused a riot. And he, they were beaten, thrown in prison. And while they're in prison, they decide to celebrate getting beaten up by having a hymn sing in the middle of the night such that a, an earthquake comes and busts them loose. And the Philippian jailer, who, who assumes he's going to die because he's failed to, keep, to do his one job to keep the prisoners in prison, comes and says, how might I be saved and Paul and Silas say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so the, this, the, the gospel goes to Philippi. A, a church is planted amongst people who are mostly pagan or not religious at all. And, and so I, I, what I want you to see are at least two things as we walk through the book of Philippians that I believe make this book a timely word for us in its timelessness. The, the first is that in the season of Easter that we're currently walking through, there's a, a particular encouragement for us. That is, you'll see the climax of the book of Philippians is in chapter 3, in which Paul says that, that in the end, there is nothing greater. Nothing. Not a thing. And he compares everything else to something. We'll, we'll have fun talking about that when we get there, but he compares everything to, to trash and refuse compared to one thing, knowing Jesus and knowing the power of Jesus and his resurrection. And so as we're walking through a season of Easter, I want to encourage you with the words of Paul here that there is no greater thing than to know Jesus, the risen Savior. But secondly, in addition to that, more than any other book, the, the letter of Philippians is, a, is marked by a character of deep love 
and longing amidst separation. And we'll see that even today as we read. And so for us, in this season of Easter, there can be no better encouragement in the midst of separation and isolation than knowing the resurrected Lord. So join me now. We'll pick up where we left off. I'll read a good chunk of this particular chapter all the way to verse 18, and then we'll walk through it together. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank God, excuse me, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. My prayer is that this isn't just ink on a page for us, or maybe for you, pixels on a screen, but instead that it becomes the very Word of God by the Spirit of God to the people of God. And as we open this Bible together, the Holy Spirit actually begins to open us. And last week we were introduced to the history of the Philippian church in Acts 16, and then the basis for this letter in the first two verses, that is the identity of Paul and Timothy as slaves or bondservants to Jesus Christ, and our identity now in Christ as saints, that is holy, not because of any moral action on our own part, but because of Christ. And the greatest thing you could wish for a person, he says in verse 2, is the grace and peace that comes from knowing God in Jesus Christ. And so we have here in verses 3 through 11, two prayers that show us how to give thanks, and also how to pray for or intercede for one another. And last week, uh, I contended that this, this, this is what I would say, if, as Paul introduces us to himself, not as an apostle with a title, but as simply slaves of Jesus. And so I, I tried to contend last week that there ought to be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. That is, that Paul and Timothy, even, even though they were fruitful and faithful and gifted, and we, we see testament to that for the, rest of the, for the rest of the Bible, they still see themselves as just simply doing what Jesus said. And the picture you'll see even of humility is a reflection of the mind of Christ within chapter 2 we'll be invited to have. After all, you can't call yourself a Christian if, if in the end you, you disagree with Christ's posture and work. And if, if Christ emptied himself for us, then so also we empty, our, empty ourselves for others. Now, I want to 
approach this as, as humbly even as possible. I, I say there ought to be no such thing as an arrogant Christian. I'm tempted to really say there is no such thing as an arrogant Christian. But at the very least, there ought not to be. Because if we are simply, as we see here, set apart as holy, not because of our own moral behavior, but because of God's mercy and grace towards us, then Christians have no right to strut. We're just glad recipients of something we have not deserved. And so what I want you to see here is that if last week we were introduced by Paul and Timothy that because of Christ there's no such thing as or ought not to be such thing as an arrogant Christian, then this week we see in these verses there ought to be no such thing as an ungrateful, joyless, or disconnected Christian. And you see here the, the way in which is, he unpacks that. He starts expressing deep gratitude for them, and he, and he starts to to express his rejoicing and joy, not because the circumstances are great. In fact, he's in prison, and they're experiencing some hardship that we'll see for the rest of the book. But then he also says, like, ultimately, this is going to come through the work that, that, that you're growing in because of Christ together. There's no such thing as an ungrateful Christian. There's no such thing as a joyless Christian. There's no such thing as a disconnected or isolated Christian, because in Christ, all of those things are confronted. We're simply slaves. We're made holy because we're recipients of unmerited favor, that is, grace. Sinner is who you are because of what you do. Saint is who you are because of what Christ has done. And that ought to fill us with a sense of Humility rather than arrogance. But we'll see this week that there ought to be an overwhelming experience of joy that God has granted to us. And so here's my reflection, and I want to invite you to join me in meditating on this. Fill in the end of this sentence. I am joyful unless. I'm joyful except for, and then fill in the blank. I am joyful unless. Now, I want to invite you, wherever you are, especially maybe if, a, if you're listening or, or watching this morning and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I'm, I'm so grateful that we've been able to connect this way. I believe God brought you here. I believe you're not here by accident. And I would encourage you to ask this question, like, what do you really find your joy in? And, and you'll see this most specifically, is that you're joyful until this happens, or unless, fill in the blank. And I want to invite you to reflect on that. Is it possible to have joy grounded in something so secure that no outside circumstance can shake it? And we're invited in this entirety of this letter to experience joy in isolation and separation and trial. I'm joyful unless. Now he tells us some of the ways in which this joy overflows, and we're invited to jump in them together. So verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Now, the first thing you see here is that you will, you will love what you pray for. You will love what you are grateful for. Your gratitude and love and affection, these are all interwoven together. You, it's impossible to love anything you feel entitled to. It's impossible to to experience gratitude in any place where you feel slighted or treated unjustly. If you feel entitled to a particular thing, it's impossible to feel gratitude and then love. And so listen how he models that. He says, I get to thank God every time you even cross my mind. Now, this has a particularly uh, significant and meaningful uh, place in my own heart in the last weeks leading up to this. We're now uh, several weeks into social distancing, and, and there really can't be a better way to articulate how I feel about so many of you. I thank God every time you cross my mind. And I want to invite you that when that happens, it's an act of God. It's an act of God reminding you of how kind He is. I thank God every time I remember you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And so there's this picture of how in Christ now, I am free to experience gratitude and love for people 
rejoicing in this community that God has given us called the church and do so with joy. In many ways, Paul in this letter is the embodiment of what we saw through our journey in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What does God want with my life? Well, he says it right there. To always be rejoicing, always be praying, and always, be, always giving thanks. This is what God expects, and this is what God is calling us into. And in many ways, we see this embodied, don't we? Starts off, I thank God. Thank God for every remembrance of you. And I am rejoicing in that. And we see this is a prayerful joy that I'm experiencing. And this is profound. This is what I'll just say to uh, the overflow of an experience of the gospel is humble and grateful and prayerful joy. It's joy. One author puts it this way, joy, not grit or determination, is the hallmark of holy obedience. We are to be lighthearted in what we do and avoid taking ourselves too seriously. Listen to this, joy is a cheerful revolt against selfishness and pride. Joy is a cheerful revolt against selfishness and pride. And I want you to see that that joy is a result of having received a gracious gift from God that we did not deserve. And it overflows for Paul in the same way that I have an overflow of joy for you. I I miss you. If nothing else, this uh, time of social isolation has caused me to reflect on, on the ways in which I have I have done poorly at at thanking God for you, for people around my life. I I would say most of us have taken for granted the gift that it is to gather together. And it may be some time, mind you, before we get to enjoy that again. But this time has been a, a, a provocation for me. Remember what I told you? It's hard to feel grateful for something you feel entitled to. I don't know about you, but this time is, has exposed all sorts of things that I feel very entitled to. And I, I regularly feel entitled to being able to gather with people. To gathering with you. And if nothing else, the Lord has shaped my own heart in the last couple of months to be much more grateful. And I shared this with some people even this last week. I'm, I just think back of like, all the hugs I should have given out 10 weeks ago. And when that becomes safe and okay to do, I I, want to make a commitment to do better at that. But where does that joy and that fellowship come from? Well, he tells us, because of, or as as a result of, what? Your partnerships. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that I'm reminded about you. But it's it's not because you're particularly great or I'm particularly great, but it's because of our partnership in the gospel from the first day, and then we read about that first day in Acts chapter 16, when, when this movement began and these relationships began, the seeds were planted because of our partnership in the gospel. Now, that joy, the, the remembrance and the gratitude for the people God has put into Paul's life is rooted in, catch this, the gospel. Now, that word partnership translated is, is profound. It's actually the word fellowship. In Acts chapter 2, remember the, the pillars of the church are, are that, that they would gather together for the breaking of bread, for, to, to pray and, and, to, and to be gathered around the apostles' teaching that came all the way from Jesus. And then also what? The fellowship. They were devoted to these things. That's the same word there. And he's grateful because of the fellowship that they have, first and foremost, in the gospel. The good news that you and I are are while in sin separated from God, drawn back into communion and family with Him because of Christ. 
It's good news. Death doesn't get the last word. Our sin doesn't get the last word. Tragedy and awful circumstances do not get the last word. Good news. A king has come, and this king has laid down his life for his people. This king has an upside-down kingdom. He doesn't send other people to die for his purposes. This king, good news, jumps out in front of his people to die for them. And that good news links us now to the Father and to one another. In Christ, we saw last week, phrase over 200 times in the New Testament. We're united with God now and united with one another because of this good news of what Christ has done for us. That's it. That's the basis for our relationship. But just note how that, how that invites us to something. That partnership, that fellowship, that's not a word we use very often, but the ESV translated part, translates it par, partnership correctly, right? Like, after all, if you were a lawyer in a firm, what does it mean to be a full partner? What does it mean but to be fully invested and to share, right? To, to have a business partnership is what? It's to dip into savings and put it on the line to where there's a, a mutual project that you are now sharing together. That word fellowship, we don't use that often. In fact, in, in Christian Circles, we get, it gets abused, right? Anything that just we want to call fellowship, we call that. But, but notice, real fellowship is what? In that phrase, in the gospel, right? Just because you're hanging out with other Christians doesn't mean that there's some sort of overwhelming and miraculous grace bestowed upon your conversation about whatever it is that you really are excited about. Our partnership, our fellowship is in Christ. It's in the gospel, but that word fellowship, even then, if we might misuse it, we might use it rightly. For instance, if a, if a person were to uh, be studying and, and in the academy, you have things that are called fellowships, or we would call them scholarships, but, but in, in a more vocational level, they're fellowships. So, so what does that mean to be in fellowship? But to be committed, but to share a burden, to be united in purpose. Hear me clearly, to be deeply invested. And this is why as a church, now I think you'll see through the rest of this book, almost everything we, we try to say as a church, the language we have of, of valuing the gospel, community, and mission, these are, these are very unoriginal terms. They, they go right back to, I think you'll find here, you're going to see all these things like, oh, that's why they keep saying that, because it's literally what's in the New Testament. But, but it's passed on through, let's say, St. Augustine, all the way to Charles Spurgeon, to Leslie Newbigin, to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to now, like, the gospel radically shapes our sense of relationship and community and the purpose that we are now sharing together. And so, therefore, one of the things I hope you'll hear us do regularly is fight very viciously against any language of tourism or consumerism that invades our conversation about the church. If ultimately there's a shared investment, we're laying our lives down as Christ calls us to because He has done this for us, then it's consumerism that might rob us go to Jesus, I put the coin and get the gumball. And then I go to the church, I put in the coin and I get a gumball. Like I, ultimately, I, I, I'm in control. I'm God. I'm, I'm on the throne. But notice like that language there of partnership and fellowship in the gospel doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for that. It demands an investment. And here's the bomb, right? This is, this is where... This is the tweet you should retweet, right? This is, this is one of the first of so many greatest hits of Paul that you should commit to memory. Not that you shouldn't commit the entire thing to memory, but certainly this. And I am sure of this. Here's the reason I have confidence and ability to be thankful and grateful for you every time I remember you. He who began a good work in you, remember, calling back to that first day where the gospel was planted, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The thing that Jesus started, the thing that the Holy Spirit stirred in you to look to Jesus for hope, He will not abandon it. He will finish it. And so what does He offer? The joy that He's trying to pass on, the gratitude He's expressing, is grounded in a certainty, a confidence that Christ has not only purchased the beginning of this journey, but He has purchased the end. He has purchased your salvation and your sanctification. Christ has bought and paid for not only uh, 
a, a, a joy at experiencing forgiveness, but he has purchased the end. You're being made holy. Did you hear that for the rest of that passage? That I want you to grow in love. Well, what kind of love? Love that also is marked by knowledge and discernment and love that's marked by approving and discerning what is excellent and a love that is gaining purity and blamelessness in Christ and the fruit of righteousness. He is confident that the thing that God has begun, he will not leave unfinished. Christ has purchased not only our salvation, but our sanctification, our glorification, our full redemption. The thing that he has begun, he knows is going to be completed. He, now notice this, Paul resists the temptation to have confidence or, in, in, or marvel in something that's transitory, that's mortal, that's temporary. He resists the temptation in his own suffering in prison and, and their suffering with fear and uncertainty about the future. He resists the temptation, temptation to simply give them hope and peace in temporary circumstances. Like he could have just said, hey, it's going to be over soon. It's going to be over soon. Right? That it's going to get better until it doesn't. Instead, he's able to give thanks. He's able to rejoice. Why? Why is he able to give thanks? Why is he able to rejoice in the middle of these circumstances? Did you catch it? Because he is confident in whom? He. I am sure of this, that what? He. That is he. That is God in Christ who began a good work in you will finish it. His confidence is in the one who doesn't tire of giving. His confidence in the one who, who doesn't tire of, of loving. His confidence is in the one who, who never becomes unable to give. His confidence is the one who never gets tired or exhausted or worn out or impatient. His confidence is, the one, is in the one who is slow to anger and rich in mercy. His confidence is in the one who does not abandon his work. Now we and the world do all of these things without exception. Become impatient, weary, and then we die. But he, he does not tire and he does not die. And so look what he's willing to do. He's willing to pass on glory. He says, he who began a good work. Now notice, he doesn't, he doesn't attribute what was happening to himself or Timothy or Silas. He doesn't attribute what was happening to Lydia or the Philippian jailer. He doesn't attribute what was happening to them. In many ways, he robs them and he robs himself of glory or any self-confidence or self-assurance. You know, Paul doesn't say, I'm confident that, that the thing that we started is going to last. I'm, I'm confident that I taught you well. It's not going to fail. Nope. He robs himself and the Philippians of glory and credit. Why? Because if he takes away the credit, then he also takes away the hopelessness, the despondency, and the despair. Because if he started it, then prison might end it. If they started it, then persecution might kill it. But if God started it, if what God is doing in the world, in our hearts, through the church, is something He's been doing for eternity past and He will not abandon at any time in eternity in the future, then we have confidence. And here's what I think happens here. By saying, He who began, He's saying that like essentially any credit or glory that we try to take will end in despair and despondency. When we try to take the credit or take the glory, it feels good, right? At that moment, it feels great. But in the end, it fades. But if the glory and credit belongs to, some, belongs to someone else who started it, and someone who else who started it who never fails, never tires, and never ever gives up on the works of his hands, well, then there's a cause for encouragement. And what is the end goal? Did you catch that? The completion, is it in our success? No, it's in Christ, the day of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't to be confused with like the prophet Joel or elsewhere, the day of the Lord. It's meant to maybe point to it, but it's meant to say simply there's a day in which Jesus Christ, and we see it twice here, the day of Christ in verse 10, in which all things come together in him. 
I agree with the theologian Karl Barth when he says it this way. It's, it's not the day of our death. Our blessed departure from this world that forms the end. It's not the day of our death that forms the end. But it is the day of Christ Jesus. And His victory in the world. It's His making all things new. The day of our death is is only blessed insofar as it it coincides with that day. That day of Christ and His completed work of making all things new. And so therefore, we don't look for a means to run away or escape, but instead we wait for the coming of the Lord to this transitory world. Hear the good news. Christ has purchased you and the completion of His and your work. Not to take you out of the work, but that He will accomplish it through you. Look, we all want to win, don't we? We love the feeling of credit and glory. We all love it, and so we're so hungry for it. We look to so many things to experience that that high of achievement and winning. We will look to relationships. We'll run and to a relationship as long as it feels like we're winning. We'll, we'll look to our jobs to feel like we're winning. We'll look to good grief video games. We'll look to our hobbies. We'll look to raising children to feel like we're winning. We'll look to our family. We'll look to our sports the, or our team that we love. We'll, we'll look to all of these things so that we'll feel like we're coming out on top. But look at this. That longing to come out on top and to, and to win in the end has been purchased for you by Jesus Christ. And so now you're free. You're free to stop needing that kind of winning and completion in relationships and work and family and you name it. But this is also an encouragement to us, isn't it? That we might be tempted to like read this and say, well, if, if Jesus is going to do it, then I have nothing to do. And that's not true at all. We're not meant to like take what Christ has accomplished by saving us and obscure what He's purchased us in total. Every good thing, every good thing for us, Ephesians 1 tells us, every spiritual blessing has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Right? Paul later tells the Romans, he's like, look, how will, the, how will God, if, if He hasn't withheld His own Son, how will He not give us all good things, Right? And then we see in the book of Ephesians that not only has he predestined us for adoption, but he has predestined us for good works. So friend, all the benefits that Christ has purchased for us are on their way and completed in Christ. Jesus died not only to purchase our salvation, but to purchase our obedience. To purchase, did you see it at the end? Holiness, purity, blamelessness, righteousness. So that's a, a confrontation, right, to, to us who are like, nah, I'm just going to sit back and let God do this. Like, no. Not only has, in this particular way, Jesus purchased the vehicle to get to the, de- the destination, but he's also purchased the road. And it would be silly for Christ to purchase a vehicle for you and then set you in a ditch. Instead, he sets us on the road and gives us everything we, we need. Everything, every spiritual blessing. His mercy is new every day. And Jesus died to purchase all of it. He began the good work. And he also purchased its completion. That means that Jesus has accomplished not only our standing, but our obedience. And the way we know this is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is Jesus. And that is why it is through him, that is Jesus, hear that in him, in Christ, again, that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, again, and has anointed us. Now this is a beautiful picture here. And who has also put His seal on us, His mark, right? He's signed us, this is mine, and given us His Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He used financial terms there, right? He's given the Spirit as a down payment, right? Like, you know, a real down payment is something you know you can't live without. Like, hey, I'm going to give you, I'm going to put this as a down payment so you'll know that I definitely will make good on this deal. And what is the down payment that he has made? 
so that we would know for sure he's not going to leave us, but he's going to seal, not only seal the deal, but finish the deal. He gave us himself. He did not withhold his own son so that we would know God's really serious about this, but then he did not withhold his own spirit. And the presence of the spirit is a guarantee that he will finish this. But this is also gives us encouragement in growth. Do you see from here on out that then it's, he starts praying for them that, that they would, as partakers in grace, begin to grow in love and knowledge and discernment. Notice the Holy Spirit, if, if this is confirmed in us, the Holy Spirit will expose our needs and grant the grace sufficient to meet them. The enemy wants to expose your frailty and weakness and just leave you there and heap shame and condemnation on top of you. You're a failure, you're miserable, but the Holy Spirit offers conviction. The, the Holy Spirit will never expose failure or sin on your part without also granting grace. He who began a good work will supply all the sufficiency of his grace to bring it to completion. I feel the need just to say, Christian, he won't leave you here. I don't know what your story is up to this point, but he won't leave you there. He won't. He will finish. He will confirm. And whatever the Holy Spirit exposes in us, even when it's painful, he always brings about grace. So, so look how that's demonstrated. It's, it's in community. I'm sure of this. He He's going to carry this out to completion. Verse 7, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart, for you are all now partakers of me in grace, grace both in my imprisonment and the, and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. So notice what we're granted here, right? In the gospel, we're given community as mutual partakers in grace and a mission. That is the spread, the confirmation of the gospel. All right here, piled in. And we are now a community of confidence. We're all partakers in grace. None of us needing more or less grace than the other, but in many ways always fighting over who has been the recipient of the most grace, such that we are the most kind to others. So he says, God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Just for a moment here, notice the language that's throughout this particular section the language of joy and prayerful remembrance and, and longing and missing and holding in the heart and even with the affection, literally the bowels of Christ Jesus. There's this strong expressive language. And so that, that provokes us, I hope, that, that maybe if you're, maybe you're here, I would say maybe the way to, to provoke this in you is like there's, there ought to be nothing, there ought to be no such thing as an expressionless Christian. We're highly expressive. We long for one another. We have deep emotions and feelings and affections stirred by Christ towards one another. And so maybe for you that ought to provoke you. Like if you're, if you're, if you're, if you, when we sing together to Jesus, you feel inhibited. Friend, Christ purchased freedom from your inhibitions. Maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you tend towards being just overly expressive. That is, a, you just say whatever you want and express whatever you feel. Notice it's a provocation for you as well. Our expressions are in line with Jesus. Our affections, did you catch that? Are in line with Christ's affections. That means we are neither expressionless and we are also neither selfishly self-expressive, but instead we are free now to experience all the emotions God has purchased for us and and to express them in ways that glorify God in the way that Christ showed us. And he puts us in community, a community with, with this confidence, a community that, with the confidence that this thing that God has started, he's going to finish. Now, notice how this community and this confidence, or the, excuse me, the confidence in the community is the basis for his prayer, the second part, that they would abound in love with knowledge and discernment. Now, I want this is important. Like, it is only in the setting of secure love that you can experience real change. It's in the confidence of this community that they're able to then 
be recipients of what Paul hopes will be growth in love, knowledge, discernment, purity, and holiness. You got to get that right. Look, we know this is true. We see this around us, right? When a when a baby begins to learn how to walk, how does a parent teach? But by inspiring confidence, by holding the baby up with the hands or or in some way kind of holding them along until they're able to walk on their own. And it's only in that support at the beginning that they're, they're able to, with confidence, learn to walk on their own. You see it all the time. Look, you see this as, as you teach a child how to ride a bicycle. That's what training wheels are for. You don't just put a, bike, or a child on a bike with two wheels. Now, I know all you Strider people. I know you're better parents than everyone else. I'm glad I'm glad you didn't buy a training wheels for your kids. But either way, you, you put them in a situation where they were safe. They could learn how to ride on two wheels because you put them in a position where they were first safe. And in that safety, where they knew that they were kept up from falling, they were able to build confidence. Friend, this is exactly how the church is meant to be. A community of such deep and secure love. And here's what I would just tell you. No one's surprised in the church that you're, a, that you're messed up. That's the prerequisite to be accepted by the church. It's to say, we're messed up. The only person who's surprised by your sin and disobedience and failure is you. A loving community rooted in the confidence that God is going to carry us to the end and never leave us or forsake us is able to go, yeah, that's okay. Saw that coming. I got training wheels for that. In the same way that like a tightrope walker won't, won't immediately jump on a rope across two skyscrapers or across a canyon, they'll begin with what? A net, a harness, a tool to balance with. And it's only in that safety, that, that place where failure is not only allowed but encouraged, that people experience real change. You teach a child to walk by holding them up. You teach a child to ride a bike by giving them support. You teach a tightrope walker how to not die by giving them a harness and a net. And friend, Jesus hasn't just purchased the beginning. Jesus has purchased the harness. He's purchased not just the rope, but the net underneath it. He has purchased all of these things. He has chosen you and He will hold you up. He will finish what He started. Why is that important? We are fickle. We don't finish things. But for the church, it means that we create a radically secure experience of love and grace such that we are not, we're not surprised by sin and failure. We celebrate it. We celebrate that the Holy Spirit allows it to come to light, knowing that whatever He'll begin, whatever He'll expose, He'll apply grace to. So that ultimately, did you catch the goal? They begin to discern and approve what's excellent. They begin to reject what's not excellent. They become pure and blameless. They begin to be fruitful in the righteousness that comes by walking in Jesus' footsteps. It's when we're set in a community of grace that we experience real growth in love. Abounding is the word here in verse 9. You can't love all alone. Now, I, love the, I know the world wants to teach you that like, the best place to start and finish is just loving yourself. The most important thing is to love yourself. In fact, the worst possible fate that a person could have right now is that they don't love themselves. And I'd say, great, that's awesome. Where are you going to get that supply of love? Where are you going to come up with all that love for yourself? what we find here is that the deepest source of love is what? In Christ Jesus. That affection comes from Christ Jesus. And Paul says, I want you to abound in that. You can't do that in a vacuum. You can't love in a vacuum. We're set in community to grow in literally the guts or the affections of Jesus. And this is offensive to the flesh because we just want to say like, look, love me just as I am and leave me alone. But notice what he says here. 
you'll hear us say regularly that, that yes, God loves you right where you are, just as you are, but he loves you way too much to leave you there. Yes, Christ receives you, and not only just receives, he pursues you and purchases you as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. And selfish view of love is, hey, love me for who I am, but don't demand anything of me. And for that, I would just simply ask, as as we're provoked here, verse 9, 10, and 11, where are the boundaries in your life that people are not allowed to touch? Where are the places that are off limits? People can't have that spot. Now, I know it's because of hurt. I know you've been hurt there before. But beware. You might be missing out what Jesus died to purchase for you. Namely, life, abundant, and freedom. And many of you, you're you're living in that place where you maybe you like that Jesus started something, but the fact that he'll finish it is too hard to discern, or, or, or you don't want to grow in love and gentleness. And, and so beware, like many of you, you like the fact that maybe Jesus broke the lock off the prison that you have been living in, but, but you're just going to stay there until you're ready to leave. No, Jesus didn't just buy you out of prison. He bought you a life Abundant freedom. Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, a picture of this, says that the, one of the greatest cruelties is tenderness that consigns a brother to his sin. Let me say that again. Cruelty is just simply a tenderness that consigns or simply just allows a brother or sister to be in sin. Notice what this is for us, that our deep longing for purpose is granted. Did you see that? It's for the spread and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, God's purpose in the world to redeem it. We're invited in to have a purpose greater than we could ever have alone, but we're also invited into a community to belong. And aren't those some of the deepest longings in our hearts to matter and to belong and look what Paul says, my deepest prayer for you, in fact, my, my, my greatest joy and gratitude as I remember you, is that God didn't leave you and he's going to finish what he started. And he's going to invite you into a purpose such that you're not a waste. And he's going to invite you into a family and community such that you now belong. You were adopted, received, and accepted. Look, this last week we got to celebrate our church basically turning six, and this is one of the first things we described six years ago, and you see why here in this chapter, don't you? The church is not a place with a program. The gospel transforms us into a people with a purpose. The church is not a place with a program. That's so important right now, because if it's just a place, well, you don't have to really be present. It's just going to go on without you. If it's just a program, well, you don't have to really be there. It could just go on without you. It goes on like a machine without me, without, without, it goes on like a machine without me. But, but if, if the church is a people with an identity as servants of Jesus, saints, holy and beloved because of Christ, on a mission with a purpose, joining with the very heart of God for the redemption of the world, then it demands that I be a part. And I'll wrap up on this. There is no better time to reflect on this than right now, isn't it? If the church is just a place, then the coronavirus is one. Right now. Because you're not here in the property leased by the church. If the church is just a program, a service, then the coronavirus has won. And fill in the blank with whatever hardship will come our way. But, but if the church is a partnership in the gospel on a mission to grow in love and the spread of this good news, then the coronavirus is just a canvas that we're painting on. It's just the backdrop for some greater thing that God is doing. So friend, why would you want to trust in Christ and belong to his people? Because in Christ... 
we have a true identity. Joy in any circumstance and a purpose that will not fail. And a family that we will belong to forever. Why trust Christ and join in His people on this mission? Because in Him we have joy in any circumstance. Belonging even in isolation. And a purpose even in hopelessness. Friend, might you consider that the deep longings in your heart for meaning and belonging are invitations by the Holy Spirit to receive and confirm a greater hope in Christ than you could have ever imagined? Is it possible, even right now, you, you've been brought and you've been linked up with these pixels so that the Lord might grant you comfort and joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, knowing that you will never be abandoned and meaningless and you will always belong to his people. Might you consider it even today that the deepest longings of your heart can be received and experienced by trusting in and looking to Christ to grant them. I promise you. He's brought you here. But what he's begun, he will carry it out to joyful completion. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your mercy demonstrated to us in Christ at the cross and the empty tomb. Thank you so much that you have not left us in sorrow, but instead you have bought and paid for a way out. You didn't leave us in the dark to find you. You came running to us. And so I thank you for the Apostle Paul, and I thank you for this young church at Philippi that demonstrate for us what might be when the good news of God's saving grace changes us, fills us with joy, and causes us to be humbly and gratefully mindful of all that you've granted to us. Maybe for some of us, if this is new to us, we've never considered the truth of your saving grace, might today be the day we look to you and experience it. But then for the rest of us, maybe, maybe this is the time where we're invited into a deep and lasting commitment to share and partner and fellowship in this great cause of your glory in the local church. We ask that you would, like Paul, spur us on to encourage and lift one another up to experience this kind of grace that you've purchase for us to receive. May we receive it now by faith. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.